As biomedical researchers work to combat SARS-CoV-2, the potential risks and benefits of human challenge studies in which researchers intentionally administer an infectious agent to volunteers have triggered widespread debate. After considering various technical and ethical issues, a consortium in the United Kingdom determined that a human challenge research program could be developed as part of the COVID-19 pandemic response. I'm Stephen Marcy, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Garth Rappaport, a visiting professor at the National Heart and Lung Institute at Imperial College London. Dr. Rappaport has co-authored a perspective article about designing and conducting SARS-CoV-2 human challenge studies. Dr. Rappaport, for what infectious agents and in what populations have human challenge studies been conducted in the past? Human challenge studies have been used in a variety of viral infections, which include RSV and flu most notably, but rhinovirus as well. There are other considerations for norovirus and Zika virus, live attenuated viruses, but most interestingly at the moment, malaria, typhoid, pneumococcus, and even a recently published Neisseria challenge study, and cholera. What kinds of questions can be answered using human challenge studies that can't be answered with observational studies or traditional randomized controlled trials? Essentially, we've learned over 25 years of flu and RSV challenge that the human challenges by far the most accurate way to measure viral dynamics in a longitudinal fashion, providing precise information on incubation time, peak viral load, location of the virus. But also, given that information, you determine the relevance of diagnostics, for instance, PCR versus rapid antigen tests in this case, and perhaps most interestingly, the attack rate based on the trophism of different viruses. You can get highly accurate data with a controlled inoculum dosage. There are other things as well that you can't do in field-based studies, and that is you can get mucosal immunity and innate and systemic baseline responses and then progressively measure those things in the respiratory tract with high precision. You can determine differential profiles of infected versus uninfected subjects. So we never see 100% attack rates in controlled infection models. And indeed, we didn't in this occasion. So it raises an interesting observation as to why some subjects are vulnerable or liable to infection and others aren't. And that would be impossible to do in field-based studies. Before the COVID-19 pandemic, was there general agreement about the conditions under which human challenge studies were appropriate? Or has this issue always generated debate? So this issue has generated debate, but it didn't arise with influenza in the previous H1N1 pandemic. It was over too quickly. It really became highly topical in a global setting with this pandemic. And the backdrop was a different approach by different countries and ethicists to the risk versus benefit relationship for doing challenge with wild type virus. And I would stress the importance of doing this with a wild type virus in the midst of a pandemic is a very different situation to a known RSV or flu challenge strain, which we've done in the past. In your perspective article, you describe how this consortium of academics, industry collaborators, and the British government address technical and ethical considerations to enable human challenge studies for SARS-CoV-2. Could you walk us through what that process looked like? Certainly. Essentially, it started with the appointment of Kate Bingham to the UK Vaccines Task Force under the British Government Business and Enterprise Innovation Department. And one of the questions early on in April 
potentially March, April 2020 was what happens under different circumstances if we don't succeed with a vaccine? Do we understand the drivers of infection? For instance, we did know that super spread of events dictated SARS-CoV-2 at that time based on a number of events. What were the viral kinetics and how important was aerosol and fomite transmission? None of these things were quantified at that time. And a subsidiary question was, if we don't get a vaccine, how protective is natural infection? And what is the durability of that in protective immunity? In the light of those questions, we determined that we needed to have a model which could test vaccines and antivirals. And then a subsidiary development at the end of the very first wave was an amazing collection of data in 8 million UK population-based studies called QCOVID, which we refer to in our perspective paper. And that QCOVID perspective indicated that of the 8 million, the liability to hospitalization or death for an 18 to 30-year-old person without comorbidities was vanishingly small. So a door opened out for us to say, actually, there's a population here that you can study that in the absence of comorbidities has got a vanishingly small likelihood of hospitalization or death. And that's how our thinking emerged. You mentioned vaccines. How did the authorization of the first COVID-19 vaccines change the conversation about the acceptability of human challenge studies and the approach to conducting them? We got high precision clinical data for the initial vaccines. and What we didn't get was, in fact, what has turned out to be very important, which is, would the vaccines reduce liability to infection, so with challenge after vaccination, but most specifically, could vaccines reduce the viral load or induce sterilizing immunity in the upper respiratory tract, which they probably could do with the early pre-alpha strains, but are much less successful now with Delta. The other question we were asking ourselves was whether there were differences between mRNA and adenovectored vaccines with respect to sterilizing immunity. And the only way we would be able to test its sterilizing immunity rapidly and directly was human challenge. How did the group handle the consent process and risk management? Have there been any unexpected challenges there? It was a two-phase discussion. So under the guise of a national agency called the HRA, the Health Research Agency, a specialist ad hoc ethics committee was configured from national figures just to consider this particular study. And the other component that we undertook in parallel with ethical considerations was to undertake a large public engagement campaign with Southampton University, as it happens, who are experts in public engagement, to determine public attitudes to experimental infection in this demographic. So the two things occurred in parallel. Now, the principal questions from an ethical perspective are, would the study be justified from a societal perspective? Secondly, what are the risks? And we talked about the risks a minute ago with the population-based studies. And the third, which turned out to be highly significant, was can you have any risk mitigation to put risk mitigations in place when studying a wild-type pandemic strain in a otherwise healthy population? And to that extent, We initially included, and we show this in our publication, a preemptive therapy with an antiviral agent, remdesivir, after subjects have developed confirmed infection with the purpose of stopping the antiviral once we convinced ourselves and our data safety monitoring boards that the model was safe. And that indeed is what's happened. 
but a large component of the ethical discussion was, do you have the risk mitigations in place or not? Finally, and this may expand on what you've just been saying, what have you learned from the experience of planning and implementing human challenge studies during a health emergency that might be useful for future pandemics? So the first thing we learned was that you need extensive funding in place. These are very expensive and large, huge number of different subspecialties are involved beside the virus manufacture, which I'm sure we'll come to, but the principal requirements of funding and expertise, the clinical protocol involved a cross-university expert group, a large number of individuals who've been involved in the kinds of human challenge studies I mentioned earlier, both with viruses and bacteria and other organisms. The model that we developed was unlike any other challenge study. In other words, we had to apply it to SARS-CoV-2 and we made decisions to include sequential lung CT imaging, which required very careful dissymmetry given the age and demographic that we were testing. So there was limited radiation liability. And then because of the specifics of SARS-CoV-2, we got into things like quantitative olfactory testing because we realized we we're going to be inoculating the upper respiratory tract And given the history of SARS-CoV-2, we realized that we might induce olfactory dysfunction. And indeed, that has turned out to be the case. So we had to have expert subgroups, the ENT, ear, nose and throat specialists, a particular case in point, in that not only did we have to develop quantitative testing models, but we had to reassure ourselves and the ethics committee that any damage we might incur would not be permanent. So each avenue required deep investigation. The other things we discovered was that virus acquisition of seed stock from population and hospital-based studies is complex. And the reason we discovered that was that appropriate informed consent from the donor of the virus needs to be obtained prospectively. It's quite difficult to get samples in the community, start to grow them up in early characterization and passage studies, and then retrospectively trying to achieve consent for appropriate purposes for the virus. So one of the things we learned for future pandemic type testing is to have networks and consortia with the prospective consents in place when virus samples are collected from the patients. Perhaps the most complicated was the GMP virus manufacture. And so having gone through characterization and early passage, there's a very tight regulatory conditions under which virus has grown in validated cell banks. And those validated cell banks are highly controlled with extensive adventitious virus and bacterial testing to ensure that there are no contaminants. This is an extremely complex and expensive process, and there are limited centers in the world. Certainly they exist in the US, but they're limited centers that can undertake this work to appropriate precision. Thank you, Dr. Rappaport. 